In this episode, Aaron mansplains to women how they could go about changing their careers. Uh, let me have to do that again because I want to. I totally want to keep that. I totally want to keep that. <laughs> You're listening to the Reinvention Podcast. I'm Aaron Anderson. This week, Tara Cortland and Alicia Dietz point out some of my many flaws, while also exploring how someone goes from flying Black Hawk helicopters in wartime to becoming a renowned artist, teacher, designer, and entrepreneur. Visit reinventionpodcast.com for free resources. <laughs> totally want to keep that. Totally want to keep that. We have people who are trying to figure out what it is that they can do with their lives, mm -hmm. right? And so I think you're totally cool. And so I wanted to introduce you to Tara so that in that introduction, whoever's listening could learn something as well. Wonderful. So uh, I don't know. Do you, what do you know about Alicia? Um, she flies helicopters. Used to fly helicopters. And makes art, which is like the best combination ever. And right. the most normal and transition ever. Right. And I'm hoping she does both of them at the same time. Like she gets up in the air in a helicopter and is like, hang on, I've got some wood here. Let me get my bandsaw out. And can you like take the wheel? There's no wheel in a helicopter. No wheel, there? No. Can you like take the stick for a minute while I like whip out my bandsaw? I need to like cut this piece of wood. That's quite a bit of multitasking. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, you need so, a co-pilot for that, yeah, right? So how did yes. this so, – so just quick, your background. You, you're, you're ex-military. Yes. You were uh, – and you're not just ex-military. You flew stuff. I flew Blackhawks. You flew Blackhawks. That's a you... helicopter. That is. I looked it up. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. And this is the episode where Tara mansplains what a helicopter is. <laughs> and to, the, to the Army people. To the Army people. But so – but so how – I mean how did you get into that? Oh, I have always wanted to fly. I remember when I was very, very small, my mom was a nurse and I would go to the hospital that she worked at and I would watch the helicopters land on the uh, the roof and I said, I want to I wanna do that. And so when I was in high school, I started calling around to medevac pilots, asking them how they became helicopter pilots and they said, nine out of ten of them said the military. So... I said, great. And I started talking to different branches of the military. I'm not a big fan of water, so Navy, yeah. Navy was out. And um, I had some uncles and my cousin was, were both um, helicopter pilots for the Army. And so so instead of the Air Force, you decided well. to go into the real military. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But, but so, wait, so, okay. So you, you, go to, you go to basic. No, so I went ROTC. Okay. I went through Ohio University four-year program and then commissioned as a second lieutenant right out of college. And Does that mean you don't have to go to basic training? That means you don't have to go to basic training. I didn't know that happened. Yeah, yeah. That well, sounds she, better, doesn't it? Well, she was commissioned, so she she was an officer. She I, would have been this, one of the this people. This is now the most I know about the military. That she was it have, right now. You have exceeded my knowledge of military. She could order people like me around. Yeah, I didn't but, know they didn't have to go to But it also training. means – but so you're – so you were, you went in commission. Yes. And uh, and then how do you go to flight school? So through ROTC, you get basically put on a, a national order of merit list. And then based on your ranking of that, you put in your choices of I want to do aviation or um, armor, or infantry, you know, all those things. Well, not infantry for a woman right. back then. But um, 
you get put on a list and these are your top choices and then they just start going down the list. And order. then they call you one day. I mean, you get the, you, then you get the orders that you're going to flight school. Yeah. You get a call saying you got branch aviation. So, so you, so you get, is that after you get the commission or? Before. Before. No, no. You say, oh yes, I'm giving my time to the military no matter which. Right branch of the army. So you can't I get. be like, nah, nah, I don't want to do that. I'm out. No. <laughs> okay. So you're so you're 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 in flight school mm-hmm. while you're in officer candidate school? No, you go to OCS first. No, you don't even go to OCS because the ROTC is in place of OCS. Gotcha. What's yep. OCS? Officer, uh, officer candidate, candidate school. school hey? But she yeah. she went in uh in, during school. Yeah. So you were so ROTC yeah. or okay. OCS is a very condensed version of what you learn through ROTC through I was in for four years. And then is flight school basically like AIT? What is that? Uh, sure. On crack. Okay. Yes. Um, it's a, when I went through flight school was a year and a half. Uh, and you're learning everything from instruments to to meteorology to emergency procedures um, to how to read a map. I mean, just everything. You start on the ground in um, flight simulators and then you start flying with instructor pilots, and they start giving you controls one at a time, and then you start flying the whole thing. That sounds totally exciting. It's very exciting. It's And then you go through instruments where you're flying in the clouds, reading only the instrument panel, not no visual reference to the ground, and then NVGs, which is night vision goggles, where you have no reference to really anything except you're looking through a green lens. And that's a year and a half of training. Yeah. That is awesome. And um, how old were you? I just graduated college, so 21. And how, uh, and how, where was this? Where was the trip? That was Fort Rucker, Alabama. Fort Rucker, Alabama. And then did you go right from there? Were you deployed right from there? <laughs> so I graduated uh, college June of 2001. Okay. So that puts you in the time-space oh. continuum. A, yeah, well, that's not a good time to be so finishing school and joining the Army, is yeah, it? Yeah, I was scheduled to go – I was scheduled to start uh, flight school in January of 2002, and I got a call October 1st, 2001, saying, we're starting a whole bunch of you early, so come on down. Um, and my first flight out of the confines of the training area of Alabama was over Baghdad. Oh, my God. That was my first flight out of flight school. That was your first flight out of flight school? Holy moly. So it was into the fire. <laughs> Home. So, yeah. okay. And so you, you're you just out of flight school and you're already in a war zone. Yeah. In 2001. It, by that time it was 2003. 2003. Yeah. But this is, but this is, I mean, we don't own all of Baghdad at this time. No, no. This was the beginning. This was early. And you're flying Blackhawks. Yes. Are you? And you're a rescue pilot. I mean, not a rescue, but you're you're flying. Um, what are you doing? No. Do so do I was with a um, a general purpose uh, company. We we're doing sort of ash and trash VIP missions. We we're flying the commander of ground troops around to meetings, butts and getting. True. It's a, you bring you bring people there and you drop them yeah, off and you bring get back. people there and back um, equipment personnel okay. m- movement transporting of okay. people and things. They're the all purpose. Yeah, you need a helicopter. You need to get from here to there. You need a helicopter. Yeah. They call these guys. Yeah. That is amazing. It was uh, definitely a trial by fire. Yeah, I learned m- 
my growth was exponential over a very short period of time. So what are you thinking? Like your first mission over Baghdad, what are you thinking? I mean, sometimes the sort of newness, uh, what's the word, naivete of Uh it is like, I didn't know what I didn't know at that point. And so you're it, a lot of times it was like just so much was happening all at one time. You're just going from one mission to the next mission to the next mission. And so you don't even have time to process it sometimes. So, and, and I was, I mean, I was brand new. I was a, right. I was a lieutenant like doing this. So um, so one of the things that struck me in the middle of the, the war right after it started was when they started talking about the people in the army who are flying helicopters and flying planes. They're in charge of the prison, the prisons. And I'm like... I don't. I wouldn't give my car keys to a twenty-two-year-old. Uh-uh. Like they no. give you a helicopter. Yeah, yeah, and like, and and uh, orders that include things that you can. Right. You have to. Also, do. the other thing is, I I find helicopters to be really dangerous, Are even they? when no one's shooting at you. So wait, like, I, have a, I have a friend. I have a friend who said, uh, if you are in a if you are in a helicopter, it means your your your. Uh, propel your uh, what are those things? Wings. Wings are moving faster than you are. Therefore, you're in a helicopter. Therefore, you are unsafe. Is the that propellers, true? Yes. Um, <laughs> that's okay because I had a wheel. Okay. I had the steering wheel. You've got the yeah. The, but the, but those I mean, are, are yeah. they are they dangerous? Well, I mean, they most accidents are caused by pilot error, not by any mechanical. So no stress issues. on you. Yeah, it's. I mean, you're managing. You're managing a lot of things at one time. But it's got to be less scary, though, because you're always totally confident in yourself, right? Like, mm. there's, nothing's going to go wrong. I'm flying it. Yeah. Yeah. Is that true? No, of course not. But um, <laughs> but is that what you it's, think? It's a two-person aircraft. So the, it's a two-pilot aircraft. So you have your, your pilot and your co-pilot. And then the, uh, you have two crew chiefs, which in in a war zone means means that they're also gunners. Right. So they're in the back and in a a Black Hawk is a utility aircraft. So it it's not um equipped with any onboard weapons of of any sort. You know, we're we're doing sort of a, a quote unquote peaceful mission. Right. Um just transporting. So the but the okay, so you you don't have you don't it's it's you don't have guns in this particular No, it is self defense only. <clears throat> okay. I mean but are there my experience with the Blackhawk is I was medevaced in a Blackhawk, so okay. I'm familiar with the back end of it. Yes, right. So it's it's the it's the update of the Huey. I mean, yes. it does everything. It, yes, right. It's the it's the truck of the mm-hmm. it's the truck of the military. Mm-hmm. So, and you have there's a four man crew, four person crew, four person crew. Okay, and then what? So what were some of the weirder missions you went on? Well, yeah, I mean, we were just doing general purpose. So deployed, they were sort of. I don't know. I don't know what normal it, the baseline for normal is of course <laughs> adjusted when you're deployed but I did a project where I collected stories from a bunch of different veterans and spouses. It, it's a project called Collective Cadence. And so the story that I submitted for that really I was trying to get a day in the life like give me one event one moment in time that sort of defines the military for you not 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 give me your whole right. um, history. Um, and so mine was when I was um, I was stationed in Egypt and I was in command of the aviation company over there for the multinational forces and observers. Okay. So it's a small, um, it's an 11 country contingent actually stationed five kilometers from Gaza in um, the Sinai Peninsula. 
Do you mind if I just no, read no, you no, the story? No, 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 okay. this is cool. So this, is, this was my um, submission to my, to my own project. Um, when I was in Egypt, we had an aircraft whose engine kept giving us fits. It was a normal mission transporting troops to outposts, and we had made several runs that day and were on our last trip back. I had a crew of four U.S. soldiers, as well as four Colombian infantry passengers, none of whom spoke English. The engine went out. We did an emergency landing on a small paved road in the middle of the Egyptian desert, slightly wider than the span of the landing wheels. I couldn't have done that landing without the coordination between my crew calling out the sand dune obstacles that kept getting larger and larger as we descended, monitoring their instruments, the wires, the width of the quote-unquote road. It was truly a team event to get the aircraft to the ground. But it was really after the landing that exemplified the idea of team that I so dearly miss. Without hesitation, the Colombians hopped out of the aircraft and through all nonverbal communication, followed the lead of our crew to set up a perimeter around the aircraft. It wasn't the hostile environment of Iraq or Afghanistan, but this was during the time of the Egyptian Revolution, and security was always a concern, especially around a large aircraft. My crew and the Colombians would take breaks, keeping security and looking for obstacles, surveying the land for when we had to depart, taking note of distances and obstacles that would be on our, in our way after we offloaded all the excess weight for our recovery aircraft. We did a rolling takeoff to get back off the ground. What is that? So that's basically like taking off like a plane. Oh, Normally, okay. a helicopter can just... Generate lift. Generate lift on its own. But we, because we only had one engine, because the aircraft was so heavy and because of the temperature in the desert, we didn't have enough um, lift to go straight up. So we had to do a rolling takeoff and the width of that road was pretty (laughs) tiny with sand dunes on either side. Um, So the Colombians were watching our back uh, every step of the way. And there was just something that happened between the eight of us that day. We became a single unit even through no verbal communication. And so for me, there is nothing extraordinary about that experience, but the actions of those seven soldiers is forever imprinted on my mind. We came together, trusted each other, and worked as a team. We united under a single mission and accomplishment and accomplished it. So for me, that's just, that's, that one story exemplifies the community that, is formed in the military, and I honestly haven't experienced a community like like that, like that since. Sense. No, and what was so much even more unique about that is is we did that without talking. So you have the this shared. Part. You just have the shared thing, shared mission. Everybody's yeah. on board, and everybody's pulling their weight. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there is anything outside of the military like that. I mean, I, not. I haven't found it. Not with those kind of. Not with that kind of stakes. That's. That what the hell were Colombians doing in Egypt? So, because it's an eleven country contingent, the the Colombians and the Fijians were the infantry. They would man the outposts because the mission of the MFO over there is to make sure Egypt and Israel are upholding the the peace treaty, and so we would um, fly up and down the border of the Sinai Peninsula and of Israel. Um, counting vehicles and doing a bunch of other things. And so the there are a bunch of other countries over there and they each have their own mission. Um, and we would we would transport the Colombians and the Fijians around a lot to those outposts. I didn't outposts. know Fiji had an army, first off. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, the Fijian army there. The Fiji, huge. right? Like, yeah, and all, this just got to be weird to be like from Fiji and then be like suddenly in Egypt. If you look at the list of people who are like uh, allies, and there's there's some weird things. Yeah, like, like Fiji and all yeah. that sort of stuff. The yeah, Fijian I was army. in I was in Qatar during this time. So this okay. part. So I mean, I yeah, that was a weird. There was a weird energy over yes. there at that time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait. So this the the collection you did the spoken word stuff. Did that does that feed into any of the work you did in art? Since then, not well. That was my thesis project in grad school. Okay, um, and peop- I collected. It was more written word than spoken word. People would send me their stories, their prose, and some of them would be a page long or four pages long. And then what I would do is I would condense that into a poem. Um, if you ever read a- Annie Dillard's Mornings Like This. Or is it mornings like these? We can look that up. I can never remember. Um, Mornings like this or mornings like these. Uh Um, And she extracts uh, famous speeches and she's just taking certain words out and putting them into poetry. And so that's what I would do with people's stories is I would just extract those parts, never changing the language or the order so that people, when because at that time I had 140 stories. No one's going to read 140, right. you know, different full-length stories. So it would be just whatever to get the ens- essence of of their experience. So, so can we jump to this? Because this is this sure. is really why I wanted you guys to meet and why I think you're so cool. Because you started in the military and you started doing that, but that's not what you do now. No, you are now an artist. Um, and designer, and you do like how did that? That's a that's not a normal transition, right? That's not the common transition. Not a common transition. No, I, I think for me though, flying a helicopter, there is extreme attention to detail, and there is this sort of saying that you always have to be ahead of the aircraft. You have to. You're you're making decisions that are going to affect you like immediately, but also much further down the line. And and an aircraft, if we're talking purely physical, is moving very quickly. So you're you're making decisions quickly that that are, are really affecting you in real time. You're taking in information that you've learned in the past on the ground in school from your mentors. And all of that is you're making all these decisions sort of in real time, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, and so when people ask me, how do you how do you make that transition? The things that I learned in the military is that you're looking at an overview of something and something in very specific detail at the same time. Mm. And you're always assessing the situation and and making a making a plan based on that before we would even get in the aircraft, you're you're mission planning. And so there's days sometimes, multiple days sometimes, of planning a mission um, with other aircraft, with ground troops, you know, you're looking at right. the terrain, all that stuff. And then, of course, as soon as you take off, no mission survives, no plan survives first contact. It, right. it never does. So you're assessing what's happening right there in real time, making decisions, disseminating that information, executing, then that plan is going one of several different ways. And so you're, it's this constant like assessing, disseminating, executing. And so that mindset has really, has really 
dovetailed into woodworking. There's a wood there's a wood pun for you, dovetailed. Oh, oh, oh that's um, good. Oh, I can see it. Now. Yeah, yeah. So it it really lends itself to to woodworking. You make a set of plans for even just a cabinet or a table, and as soon as you go to the table saw and you cut a sixteenth more than what your plan says, or you you make one cut different than than what you originally thought. Now you're in a constant cycle of assessing and making a new plan and making decisions based on what this is. You can go back and make another cut, but right. do you have the wood? Like, there's just all these things that are happening. I never thought about it that way, but you, it's absolutely right. You have that, that weird... There's the details, the really, really fine details, mm-hmm. right? What the land looks like. Mm-hmm. There's the the overall plan, but it's not it's not like the devil is in the details. Those are two. You 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 form the plan because of the details. Yeah. And woodworking is the same, right? Yeah. You, the grain of the wood and. Yeah, yeah. There's all these details that are being made ahead of time, and in in the military, and something they taught they teach you as a leader is inaction is worse than like not the best decision like violence of action yes we have to keep moving forward you have to make a decision and whatever that decision is you have to disseminate that and execute even the wrong decision is is better than no decision yeah and i find that that mentality has helped me so much through craft and through making is i spend very little time him hawing over what to do I, I assess something for a reasonable amount of time, and then I make a decision. I move forward, and then you change as uh, you pivot as you need to. Yeah. So, so in the military, someone else is telling you what your mission is, right? Usually. Or yes. just something, yes. right? Usually. So yes. in in craft, are you? Do you have to have the entire vision yourself, <laughs> or are you working with somebody who's like, "Here's what I want." You you execute my vision. That is a really good question, and something that has not been pointed out to me before, but I think, yeah, that's really interesting because I think where I struggled the most was in grad school where I was the captain of my own ship. Like I had to make every decision. And so paralysis of infinite possibilities. Like that is a really interesting perspective because now that I work with clients and am making furniture and commissions, you know, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of different starting points, whether it's dimension or style or just someone's general idea of what they want. There is something to start from and then we go from there. But in grad school where it's like the world the world is your oyster, well that's amazing, but also yeah, paralysis yes. of yeah. I'm, a, I'm a writer and so and uh-huh. I can't I don't have a vision. I never have a vision. You have to tell me what you want. Right. I can't just And then you'll do it. I can I can absolutely execute mm-hmm. your plan. Mm-hmm. But you have to tell me the thing. I don't have a vision ever. Yeah. So poetry yeah. is like that. It's it's uh, it's freedom and form, mm-hmm. right? You're better it's off. Terrifying. Yes, yeah, terrifying. <laughs> so wait. So let me go back to this. So how do you trans? I mean, like how? Why? Why arts and why? Why? Yeah. Why? Why the transition? That probably started much earlier. Um, my dad had a very modest uh, wood shop when I was growing up. I would build. You know, little lightning bug catchers and a little school bus, like with him in in the shop. Um, and he would he made our living room furniture. I mean, it took him a decade to like knock out a coffee table and two end tables because he was just doing it on the weekends. But I really valued 
the idea of making something with your hand and was familiar with wood. So when I got into flight school, so much studying and you're just it's just very intense all the time, um, just the amount of knowledge that you have to have. And so they would have these places called MWR, Morale, Wellness, and Recreation. And it's places very much like the Visual Arts Center here in Richmond on a much more reduced scale. But you could go in and learn how to throw a clay pot or go in the wood shop. So I would go in the wood shop and that would be... That would be my R and R. That would be my way. So it's to on like base. You're relax. you're going there and you're yep. relaxing. Like There's it's the pottery same. in the army. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's places, I like that. That's pretty. Yes. Cool. There's okay. places that you can go and play guitars. They have guitars and yeah. really? rooms. Yeah. I uh-huh. like the idea that my tax dollars are funding this. Yes. I like, oh, yeah. I, that's way better than some of the other things. I we like got it. a lot of people. Got a lot of downtime. They have I to like do a thing. It. Yeah, uh-huh. that's good. Uh-huh. I haven't. I didn't realize that there was arts there too. I know that they do theater that's and things nice. like that. So okay, so you're doing that, and then when you when you ETS, is that when you went to grad school? That's when I started calling in this very similar fashion. Life is cyclical, uh, as always. And so in the similar fashion where I started calling helicopter pilots to find out how they became pilots, I started calling woodworkers and furniture makers, being like, where did you get your training? How did you become a furniture maker? Um, Varied answers. Right a lot of different ways. Um, and I ended up going up to a very traditional woodworking school in Vermont, uh, Vermont Woodworking School, learning v- very traditional practices, hand-cut dovetails, mortise and tenon joinery, very much rooted in craft and craftsmanship. So, so you originally didn't think of doing it sort of there's, there's fine arts and design arts. And so you originally thought you were going to make be a craftsman. Exactly. Okay. Yep. And then what in my two years there, you have to do an internship. And so I went out to San Diego, California and did an internship with a woman named Wendy Mariama, mm-hmm. who is my personal hero. She's just uh, amazing. She was in woodworking at a time when women weren't supposed to be woodworkers. She started painting furniture and all these, you know, traditional wood guys were like, what are you doing that's sacrilegious this is ridiculous um and she has used her craft to talk about very politically charged issues about the internment of japanese americans during world war ii about the killing of elephants for their tusks and she's done this through craft and so i said okay i have these like roots of these technical roots now i want to learn about concept and how i can bring concept into my work. And she was the first one that's like, you you have this experience of the military that not a lot of furniture makers and or craftsmen No, they're not they're do. not that many furniture makers yeah. in the military. Background. So like you need you need to tell your story. And so she's the one that introduced me to to the idea of grad school. Before that, I was like, no, I'm just going to be a furniture maker. So she was like, no, you need to go to grad school. Is that how you ended up at VCU? It is. And why did you choose VCU? Long story short, my partner and I were three years um, long distance between my year in Iraq or my year in Egypt and then two years up in Vermont. Um, And so I was like, and she was here already. So like, no, we're staying. I'm staying local. I applied VCU is the only place I applied to, 
And I got in. Little did I know that it, it would still be another two years of long distance. You know, your ship's passing in the right. night <laughs> in grad school. Well, and luckily, it's you know, it's a, it's a top, it's a top art school. Yeah. Oh, I mean, y- you can't pick a better place to be right in your backyard. Uh, I feel very fortunate. And and what I, what I loved about VCU is I knew that we were going to stay here in Richmond, and so I really wanted to root myself in this place. And VCU is so central right. to, to the art scene here in Richmond. And so I feel very lucky to be part of that community. So can we talk about some of your pieces? Sure. Some of your art pieces? I have a question first. Yeah, yeah. Where does wood come from? Trees? Like, yes. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> where this do you is, get – like, I was wait, looking at some of your art. You make again? a coffee table. Uh-huh. Where do you get the wood? Do you like go out in the wood and cut down a, woods and cut down a tree? No. Or do you like go to the wood store and buy a tree that's, that's a already question. been cut down for you? Somewhere in between that. I, look with, I work with local foresters who are cutting down trees for a variety of reasons, most of which are sustainably – for because it has to come a tree has to come down anyway and so I'm working with them and that allows me the opportunity to pick wood that um there we could get super techy here but when a tree comes down and it's cut into slices uh, if you get two slices that are next to each other in the tree and you open them up side by side it's called book matched so if a branch is coming off or you have a knot in this certain area and you have those two slices that are side by side on the tree and you open them up then they mirror each other and so this makes for beautiful so you can say i'm looking i'm looking for this type of wood or or keep your eye out for some interesting large Mm -hmm. chunks or things Mm -hmm. like that yeah and then you have to be very patient because in order, because there's so much moisture in trees, in order for, depending on the thickness of it, uh, if you're air drying it, which is where you get the most beautiful color and grain come through, um, it takes a year drying per inch thickness. So, do, you, so do, you, do, do they dry it? I mean, do you go get it after it's dry or do sometimes you get it and you bring it back and you dry it? In a your little place? bit of both. Okay. Yeah. Do you buy it from them? Yes. You don't like... Wait till they're gone for the night and go out in the woods. And I wish and she wouldn't. Yeah. She wouldn't say that no. on the radio. No, okay. No, it is. A, That's a cool question. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So some of the ideas you don't. I mean, like you said, if the devils are in the details, or if it's the idea and the details are there, you can't even get some of your ideas until you see the wood. Sometimes the wood does dictate um, form or a detail that I'm going to do with it. Yeah, some it, sometimes one happens. Be, it's, it's the chicken and the egg. Sometimes yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. one. So do you is stockpile wood? Do you have, because like you don't know what somebody's going to ask you for, right? Like I want a coffee table and I want a cabinet. You just have to keep lots of wood lying around so you don't have to wait three years. Yes, from the and, time I ask you for one. Yes and no. So with that, there's a cycle of. Um, I work with foresters who have had wood drying for a while, so I can okay. go out and get it and then bring it back to the studio and within a very reasonable amount of time make something with it. Um, I try – I have a very small studio, so I try and get wood that I am then going to use relatively soon. Well, and Tara mentioned something on the way over here that your work is a, a, a kind of cool combination of uh, traditional rustic and modern, right? I mean it's it's this – it's not a it's it's a weird blend. Is it, that is that a good way to describe it? It runs the gamut. I I love working with different materials with different um aesthetic qualities and it really also depends on what my clients are what type of style and aesthetic they have. Um so yeah, it's you have to 
you have to be able to be flexible. Right. That we talked about at the beginning, and and I think my military training also lends to that. You're just you're you're always flexing, and and you're using the same base roots of craft and that technical expertise. And then once you have those base roots, you can branch out. How do your clients find you? Mostly word of mouth. Okay. Yeah, mostly. And is that true for the artistic, inst- I mean, for the more aesthetic? I don't know. I don't know. How do, you, how do you describe the difference between something that is meant to be looked at as more like art for art's sake versus something that has a, a function? I, I term it as function, functional versus conceptual. Okay. Um, conceptual, there is a very small niche of veteran veterans making art, um, sort of at I won't say at this level. No, I would but, say at this level. Yeah, I yeah, know exactly what you mean. But sort of exhibition style art, um, and so trained. yes, it's trained. Yeah, um, and and there are a lot of veterans making art exhibition quality art that didn't go through grad school um so there there certainly runs a gamut um but once i'm now part i have now embedded myself in that veteran artist community right and so that becomes that that really opens a lot of doors for my veteran centric type of work i i met alicia when we were doing um uh creative ets so actually, can you could you explain to Tara a little bit about creative events and how you got involved with them? Because that's a because that's an interesting art. Yeah, event. they are a terrific group based out of Chicago, um, and um, what they do is pick veterans who mostly have had traumatic brain injury or um, PTSD, and they bring them. Their main hub is in Chicago with School of the Art Institute there, um, and bring them and use craft. As a way, this you just with the theater. They're awesome. Yeah, they're. I I mean, their their mission. What uh, Richard Casper, what he set out to do. uh, I think. uh, I mean, it 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 makes me cry to think about what he's doing. He's just like, he used art to cure himself, or Mm -hmm. not to cure himself, but to to get a handle. Well, to get a handle on his PTSD. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was a marine, or is a marine. Once you're a marine, you're always a marine. Um, Yeah, hua. He's but. (laughs) He he went to the art institute and said, "I want to do art to make myself better." And they said, "Do you have any training?" And he said, "No." They said, "Fine." And they brought him in. And this is one of the best art schools in the country, yeah. and uh, and it helped him. And so he spreads the he spreads it around everybody. He's got this organization called Creative Ed's, mm-hmm. and they started doing stuff at VCU. And Alicia was the uh, one of the cornerstones of that interaction here. Yeah, and the transformation. It, that the way that he runs the program is a, is a three week program every day for for three weeks and, and the transformation that you see is, is phenomenal and I do it at a much smaller scale but VizArts uh, um, has um, a veteran program there and even just over the course of six weeks they come in for a couple hours one day a week and we make a spoon. You know, the, the power to transform something with your own two hands, t- to make a block of wood and turn it into this functional utilitarian thing. There is so many there are so many layers there about transformation and about taking something that you think is one thing from the outside and peeling back the layers to reveal something else. I mean, the it's pretty phenomenal. One to, of the to guys see. that I worked with, he's, uh, he was shot in the foot with an AK-47, and it took most of his foot off. And they, uh, 
he had this recreation where they – not recreation, but they, they put skin grafts and all sorts of stuff. But he was eventually going to lose this foot and so – but he's got it now. He's still got his foot and he doesn't want to lose his foot. So he takes pictures of it. He calls it Mr. Foot and he takes pictures <laughs> of it, his foot in front of statues and sort of these artistic – I mean they're, they're compositionally interesting but uh, there's a, a series of them, Mr. Foot. And he's got um, some of the – some of the skin grafts came from in his inner thigh. So he has pubic hair growing on his foot. He, it's like a hobbit foot. I'll show you some of the pictures. But we um, – you know, in the theater, I just helped him. We went to the shop and we built uh, steel frames for him to put around these things. And there's an art exhibition that they do. But Alicia was helping uh, a whole bunch of people do just uh, amazing things where they're, uh, I don't know, it, it's, it's got your hands on it. You're doing something with your hands. You're making something. But you're also expressing something you're trying to work through. Mm. Um, that's really cool. And some of your – but some of your, what do we call them, conceptual pieces are based on that idea of – we're not working through stuff, but I mean, there's a, you have a military theme to a lot of your art. Yeah, transformation it was what I would sort of, and the big umbrella that I would put it under. And that, that, that was basically the work that I did in my two years of grad school. That was me taking Wendy's advice and using that time to really be able to tell a story through craft. The first piece of yours I saw had the boxes you made uh, or the frames, lots and lots of frames. That's Collective Cadence. Collective Cadence. That's it, with so, all the stories. So the one that I saw first was the flag, The it's a patchwork flag draped over a coffin, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really move, like it's really moving just even looking at pictures of it on the internet. Yeah, they're it's, breathtaking. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. And you, uh, do you, do you, you make those, those are not on commission. No. You're making those for yourself. Okay, so the next question then is, after you have finished creating this thing for an exhibition, wh what do you do with it? Where does it – that looks like it takes up a fair bit of space. Where Does it all live in your house? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does it really? Yeah. Is they, your partner like, you need, to, you need to make smaller art because we're out of, we're out yes. of room? <laughs> also, like, I need a U-Haul to transport <laughs> half the stuff. Like, when I take collective cadence anywhere, I, I need it. Don't you wish you'd gone into digital art yeah. instead of something? I, I'm really jealous of my um, printmaker or fiber <laughs> friends. <laughs> People who make things that are lighter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you have your entire shop. There's lots of things. Mm -hmm. So can you describe some of the because people on the on the other end of this microphone aren't going to be able to see these things. I'll put the they should the, go to the internet. I'll go to the internet and make them so they yeah. go to the interwebs and yeah. see the pictures. But can sure. you describe a couple of your pieces? Sure, I think the more my conceptual my yeah. military pieces. The piece that for me, there's two pieces that are significant uh, in, in very different ways. But um, the first piece I made in grad school was the battlefield cross, and I carved. The boots, the weapon, the sandbags made a wooden platform, um, and then you did that one in grad school. Yeah, that was my first piece. And so, what I did there is it's human height, and it is. I then wrote the names of the now seven thousand um, soldiers who have died in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, by soldiers, I mean all branches. Right. Um, and so I hand wrote each of those names. And for me, I didn't really understand what was happening at the time. I just, something inside me was really driving me to make this piece. And so the labor of carving each section and the way that my hand would cramp up after hours and hours of writing names, in a sense, became, became my penance. 
It, right. it, it was, for a living. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, I was not able to process that at that time, but looking back on it, like I absolutely needed to make that. Do you piece. feel, I mean, do you still have this feeling that you owe penance for living? I feel a bit of survivor's guilt. Uh-huh. I think I, I would say um, I just know too many people who aren't here anymore. And it's like, right. why? Why them? Why? You know, why? I mean, that's that's such a big question. <laughs> but So this piece, so this is one of the pieces I saw first on the Internet. Yeah, and it's, you know, you first you see it as a small picture. And I was oh, like, boots. oh, yeah, it's just got boots and a helmet and a, whatever that thing is, the gun where you think the weapon and then yeah (laughs) that thing you know and then you but the the shading on the boots was kind of like there was something going on with them so you just pan in to see what's going on and you're like oh my god those are names and you know immediately what it is like it's breathtaking this is incredible and then you realize how small she must have been writing to get all these little names and and then on the helmet to it's and how many there are yeah it's it's really that one's gotten you a lot of attention yeah Yeah, I feel like that is a piece that resonates with a lot of people. And I've had numerous family members um, come to my house or meet me at exhibitions and we have found their their brother or their son or their daughter on on that piece. And I do it chronologically. And so uh, if when I was writing all the names, I would see if – soldiers who were from the same unit, you know, died mm-hmm. on the same day. And so they're written next to each other. And so someone, if, if an, if a helicopter crashed that event, there, that event, that is event memorialized. yeah. And, and they're right there with their brothers, their brothers and sisters. And so the comfort, it, it's been really powerful just to, to witness not certainly not closure. I won't even give it that weight, but just this idea that there is someone outside of that person's family and friends that has recognized that loss, and just the 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 mere act of me writing their names shows that this person will be remembered beyond. Yeah. Just their family and friends, and so it's been, it's been really, for me personally, an extremely powerful piece. And then just to see it live in the world, um, and for other people to experience it has been. Does it? Yeah. It goes out every once in a while. Yeah, it's it's currently um, in uh, Providence now, and it will be in Boston um, after the new year. Can I? Yeah. Ask a pragmatic, not yeah. emotional question. When your art gets sent around the country to be, you get paid for that. No, like, no, you, they just you've made the thing, and now people just ask if they can borrow it. Yeah, um, and depending on what gallery you're working with, like I can uh, get reimbursed for travel or, mm-hmm. or shipping or whatever. But no, that work. There's no monetary compensation. If you're a if you're a professor. In this, your stuff is display, display stuff. No, you get. Uh, I mean, it. It you, you get. The university likes the fact that you have national attention. Sure, but you're not tenured. No, right. So, does the university care? Well, I. Um, I barely work for uh, 
VCU? VCU anymore. I was I was adjunct there for a while, um, but I haven't been. So, so are you making a living selling the furniture and then the art you're doing for you and for the world? Yes. Is that, so, but your your income comes from furniture. Correct. Okay. That's cool. So, is the difference between art and craft? Whether you oh, get paid for it or not. That's a deep hole. Right? <laughs> that's a great question. Though. So, but like I always think of like art doesn't maybe necessarily have function exactly, but it's more expensive if you can sell it. Right? Like craft is useful and people might buy it from you, but they don't pay as much. You're as actually if it was the perfect heart, person to ask this right? because like, your you do functional both. stuff because you is, do both, right? is artistic. Right. Your I functional mean, stuff is super artistic. It's also not cheap. And well there but there's not I mean, the whole point is you're blurring those lines. Right. Right. You're not I try I try to, yeah. There, there is a pragmatic side, and there is an emotional side, and there, there, there's like so many different things. And I think, for me, it's what I try and express to people is I, as the maker, am making both of those things, and sort of the passion and the emotion that I put into my uh, more military con- conceptual pieces is the same passion and. Mm-hmm attention to detail that I put into your your dining room table. So do you – in your mind, is there a difference between the two or is it all kind of coming from the same place? For me, it comes from the same place because the – it's interesting because I have – in every piece of furniture that I make and in every um, conceptual piece I make, I always have a part that is hand-carved. And whether it's something that is very obvious – in the boots or in some of my furniture, the crest rails are hand carved. In some parts, it's not obvious. It's, it's more for me, but there is an interaction that happens between me and the wood and the gouge. There's no machinery. It's like very quiet in the shop. I don't even have really music playing or anything when, I, when I'm carving. And it's just this act of processing and of revealing of reve- revealing layers of the wood and in that sense I am able to like shed some of my own outer layers like we all put up these walls to to block people out and when I do that even even if I'm not sharing anything with someone like to me then that is my heart and soul in into that piece. We just talked to Amy Black, who is a tattoo artist, and she mm-hmm. said the same type of thing about the act of tattooing. Mm-hmm. This is that sort of, you know, the doing is the thing. Mm-hmm. And the thing that comes out is, you know, that those things are all related. Yeah. So uh, some of the people who are going to be listening, are this is the part that maybe they're not getting. Like, this is the part that they would like to know. How do you learn about the business of how to sell those things? Ay, ay, ay. So if there's somebody on the other end of this microphone, who is incredibly creative, who and is talented, right, and doesn't hasn't figured out right. So a lot of a lot of the people, it, right? a lot of the whole reason we started this is there's a lot of people in the arts who get to the place where like I've you know you get this. This is the worst advice in the world: follow your dreams. Yeah. If you're an artist, right? <laughs> sure. It's sure. the worst. It's the worst right. advice. Yeah. Because you do it, and you're real, and even if you're really successful at it, you may not be able to eat. I mean, honest to God, right? Yeah. So that's. Uh, and I work in business, in the school of business, and I, I meet people who have done, who have figured out how to do – uh, there's a – I don't know. There's a transition between these two worlds. How did you do it? So I think it, to give like a, a blanket statement first is seek – don't be afraid to seek advice. 
something my mom told me very young is all they can say is no. So I... Hmm. Don't be afraid (laughs) to ask. Don't be afraid to ask. It's amazing how generous people will be. Um, And so I think in a pragmatic sense, it's like find people who are doing what you want to do and talk to them. Right. Um, Yeah, that's what this whole podcast is. Right. We're trying to do that. Yeah. And so here in Richmond, um, SCORE... S C O R E, the that business model, they will help you. What is that? Um, you know this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. You can get paired up with a mentor, and they'll um, help you through. D- depending on what it is, you know, the, a lot of business um, type uh, mentors out there. Score. Score. Um, so they're a great uh, resource. There is a resource that I'll think of for for veterans okay. also that you can um, a very similar thing. ACAP okay um, is for veterans and and they will pair you up with a mentor. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, and so what I do is I talk to other makers here locally, nationally. I, I just I send a lot of emails. I make a lot of phone calls. How did you get to where you are, what's working and, and what's not? And, of course, a lot of it, just like that first flight in Iraq, you're, you're just learning as you're going. And, you know, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Right. And, and I, learn, I learn something new with each project I do. Okay, I'll do this again, and I won't do this again. This is why I need to change for— And you're building word of mouth, and your, your business is just sort of growing— this way. Do you have a marketing plan or? That would be a no. That would be a no. Um, That is 2020 is to amp up a little bit more of marketing and and website and try and get a little bit more non-word of mouth traffic. Um, But but really when that's how that's how the world works is word of mouth. It, you're going to buy something mm-hmm. because Tara said this. I recommend this because it it's has true. worked for me. We we do this for for food, for clothing, for neighborhoods where we buy a house. Like we trust we trust our our friends. And so what I'm just doing really my marketing plan right now is to get furniture into people's homes so that they can help. Spread the word. Spread people, the people word. People come and see the thing. Yeah, and like, like there's the idea that there's an entire neighborhood somewhere where every everybody's living room is done in her. Yeah. Really, like, oh man, wouldn't that be cool? I dig right? it. Like somebody moves into the neighborhood and all the neighbors are like, "Come, come here, you got to see this." Do you have yeah, pictures? Do you have pictures of any of your stuff in pla- in people's places yes, on your website? I do. Yeah, I'm starting to do more of that type of photography where it's just not in front of a. Uh, gray screen where it's in people's homes because th- people then can imagine themselves in that home. I was just at Craft and Design um, for in November, and I had I had a booth there. And the way that I had my booth set up, I, I kept hearing people say, "I just I just want to live here. Like I just want this to be my space." And, and that's what I'm trying I, to. Can I say to something sacrilegious? I think of that when I go to IKEA. <laughs> I know. Edit that out. <laughs> it's just the meatballs, though. It's yeah, I like the meatballs. I like the meatballs. So, so do you? Um, is your stuff in any stores? Is there like a place where people would like walk in and be like, "I like that coffee table," and they're like, "Oh, that's great question." Not currently, but I am working on a couple of leads for 2020. One in particular, but 
Yeah. So do you have inventory? Do you have a lot of stuff that... I have some inventory. Most of my work is done commission-based, so it's one off, a one-off right. piece, which is sort of the whole point of that, customized dimensions and stuff. But like for shows like Craft and Design, I make a couple of what are called spec pieces that I have, and if someone wants it, are they, they in your house? It. Is uh, this like, don't don't touch the coffee table, it's for sale. Like They don't. currently are in my house. That's good. Um, next to the I bet your house looks awesome. To, yeah. Well, you know the cobbler's kids. That, <laughs> you know, is sort of how it is. Um, they're they're is mostly all of your in furniture storage. made of IKEA. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so um, this is sort of the last couple questions. Okay. If you um, because you have done this uh, kind of a m- amazing. Transition from the outside, it looks kind of amazing. From helicopter pilot to successful artist to someone who's making a difference in the world, helping other people cope with things. I mean, I, I, honest to God, that's why that's why I want to talk to you because because I think that's true. Um, if you could, if you could now, right? You, you didn't plan this, I guess. You didn't plan this journey. If you could go back to your earlier self, could would, what advice would you give yourself about getting here? Would you, would you say? It's going to be okay. That's that's where you're going to go. Totally do that, or would you go like, don't do that, go do something else? You you sort of gave me that as a question that you yeah. were going to ask, and so I've I've thought about that a bit, and I think it, we it, we really circle back around to that ability to be flexible, and that I I had a game plan for the next 20 years and this was what it was going to be and that didn't happen. And so the ability to be able to flex and mm. and and take take the opportunities that are presented to you. Um I feel very fortunate in the fact that sometimes it it seems like just when I was on a a divergent path like trying to decide between a couple different ways to go, this opportunity sort of comes in in front of you. And I think that the willingness to be open to that and try it out. And I I will say not all the paths that I've taken, some of them have led to dead ends. And so you like, you don't turn, you don't about face and go 180, but you like have to pivot. Um, I like that. You don't, you don't turn, I mean, you don't stop. No, you don't stop. You're also, you're not 40, are you? I'm 40 now. You're I'll be 40. You're, I was I'll like, I was counting next from 2001. <laughs> going, well, these are not questions right. you're supposed so, to ask. Uh, yeah, but she's had at least that we know of two full careers already. That's true. Yeah. Completely different. And she's That's true. only 40, right? So her life is not half over. Yeah, you're not done yet. Her working career is not probably I mean, they say, they say people. she's not 40 yet. So like yeah. – you know, they say people yeah. will, you know, shift careers so many times. Uh-huh. Most people don't shift as radically as you've done. Yeah. I, from the outside, it looks very radical. For, now, ha, sort of living in it, it doesn't seem super radical. You can go back and pinpoint woodworking from my dad and yeah. and sort of in even in the Army, woodworking w- was in there. Um, so you didn't plan it. I don't know. Not at all. Yeah. And Steve no. Jobs has a whole talk about this. I mean, he gave a speech at Stanford. He said, you know, you can't possibly plan. Your future, you think you can, yeah. But just do, do what you said. Keep pivoting, and then you can you can make sense of it backwards. Because yeah. backwards, it makes perfect Back- sense. Oh, sure. And I think the other thing that I've been fortunate is to be be intimately involved with so many diverse groups, the military 
if, if we're looking at a very stereotypical generalization, a group of military people and a group of artists yeah. are very different. Yeah. Um, but what that has done is just like when you're up in a helicopter and you get sort of a bird's eye view of things, I've been able to see the world through a lot of different lenses. And I think that has allowed me to to not to be more confident when talking to a, a room full to, of people. A room full of people. Because you know lots of different people. Yeah. There's there's diverse viewpoints and and it, Today's society, we're encouraged to separate ourselves and to put ourselves in these groups and to make ourselves unique. And and I feel like we're becoming more and more segregated. We, we can curate what we want to see through social media, through our news. And all what that's doing is it's making us more and more sort of pigeonholed in, into these groups that we want to be a part of and and. We're not seeing. So, can I ask you this? This is, and this picture. is kind of a personal question. Sure. So, the idea of um, I, I like this idea you pointed out earlier that the details and the overview are not separate, right? They're they're linked. And uh, what you're saying here is that the, the that sort of military mindset and the artistic mindset, though they seem opposite, are not really necessarily opposite, right? Yeah. Is that is that what? That, I mean, that's my perspective, yeah. I think so. I mean, so the reason I say this is personal is because um, my, my father was a scientist. My mother was an artist. And I work in the arts and I also work in healthcare and in business. And from the outside, it looks weird, mm-hmm. right? To me, it doesn't seem weird at all. Mm-hmm. But I recognize that it's Un, there's an unbalance. I mean, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to make, it's hard to explain the narrative of your life. Do you find that to be true? Sure, absolutely, yeah. So when people ask you what you do, like in a sort of sum up, do you think of yourself as an artist now who was in the military or a military person who knows his arts? <laughs> yeah, I think if I had to choose between the two, yeah. I I uh, am a soldier who is now in the that, arts. That comes across. And you two are very different because she is a military person who's making art, uh-huh. right? Or a military person who is also an artist. You're a theater guy who was in the Army once. Yeah, yeah like, I think that's true. It's, like, it's really clear. You are not an Army guy. You're a soldier. theater guy who was in the military at some point. That's great like, to get an outside yeah. perspective. Cause, uh, yeah, I no, mean, but she, this is a soldier. This is a soldier who is an artist, Like, and you are that's not. Cool. That's cool. Okay, I'm going to, yeah, all right. I'm not sure how you're to take that. You're also not a healthcare guy. You are a theater person yeah. working. You, like, you're just a theater guy. I think right? that, I yeah. think, no, I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's accurate. I mean, that's how I feel. You're a performer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Yeah, no, I feel I feel that my home is in the arts uh-huh. and that I I use my work in other avenues, right? So from the outside it looks like I do lots of different things, but I just do the one thing. Right. Is that how you feel? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think for me, Tara, back to your point, like in the military, I felt like I was a square peg in a square hole. Right. Like it all it all clicked before that and after that i never felt like i fit in i always felt like i was on the outside of the fishbowl looking in why did you leave the military oh man that's a whole nother podcast okay. but um <laughs> for a variety of reasons most of which i joined the army to fly to travel and to see the, and to lead soldiers to fly and to see the world and um, I always told myself if I can be doing at least two of those things, then I'm here. And I was at a point in my career where for the next four years or so, I was not going to be able to do 
any of those. Is it because you were promoted? You were promoted yeah, out of it. Yeah, promoted out of it, and so you were now going to you have administration. Boring, so now you yeah. have to fly a desk, and now you're not with soldiers. And I was going to be doing it in Kansas, and you know. Oh well, that's a good reason to quit right there. <laughs> all of if you look at my uh, DD two fourteen, you'll see that all of my duty stations, with the exception of flight school, were outside the continental U.S. They were Oconus. So you promoted out of your love. I did. Yeah. Into administration, and the only way to maintain your military career would have been to do something you didn't dig. Yeah, and of course, like that that decision to get out took me two years to make. Like it was not, I just was like, oh, I mean, I could see the writing on the wall. I knew what was happening. Um, and I'm like, do I sort, do I go through the, everyone who gets promoted to that rank does have to go through that. Like it's, it wasn't like they were like, you need to do this and you're the only one. No, like that's just something that comes as you Can you punch promote. someone and get busted back? I've seen <laughs> MASH. They do that yeah, sometimes. Yeah, not that's what, They get promoted, much. they that's don't what, like it, so they punch someone so they get busted back. That's what Captain Kirk did because right. he became an admiral. <laughs> and then they, and then, but his true love was being a captain of a starship. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got to lead two different companies, which is very rare for a captain. I was a company commander twice. And so I, I and I got, I got to fly much more so than most commissioned officers. And so I, I led this like really idyllic uh-huh. decade in, in the military. And I basically got to a point where I said, okay, I'm at, I'm at 10 years. If I stay in even one more tour duty right. station, like I need to stay in the full 20. Right. Like there's just, it'd be silly to get out after 14 years or right. so. And so I was looking at where I was talking about age. I was 32 at the time. And I said, I can get out and I can start a new career and I can still be young enough to start that career, to go back to school or to, to do what I didn't know what I was going to be here, but like start something else. I see how um, ageism is affected a lot of people in this country. And if you get out when you're 42, you've retired from the military and now you're put back into the workforce. You're not ready to retire, retire yet. But I've saw, I've seen a lot of my friends and a lot of my mentors get out of the military and they don't talk about uh, being outside the fishbowl. Like, they don't know how to fit into society or more, more right. so Civilian society life. doesn't know how to bring how to use their skills, how to into, use their very yeah, good skills into this, into the fold. So if you okay, go back. So like if I could go back in time, I would tell myself you've you don't have a choice. Right. If there's if you don't do what if you don't keep doing the artistic thing, to your point, you're going to explode. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't. You This is the only path forward. OK. Right. Come hell or high water, you've got to figure this out because that's just you've got something in you. If you if you go go back to that moment that you decided those two years you decided to get out of the military, do you make the same decision? I mean, so you've you've you know you've had this career after it. Do you tell yourself, yeah, you've got to make this decision, or do you say oh, maybe you should stick it out and figure it out? That's a great question. Financially, I would say <laughs> you should have stuck it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> But if I'm looking at everything else besides the bottom line of uh, the the income, um, I may I would still make that decision today. Okay. Yeah. Because you've been able to do things that you wouldn't have been able to just do in the military. You wouldn't have been able to make that piece of art. No, certainly not. And and who knows now? 
I would be retiring next year, actually. And so now, now where would be my starting off point? Right. I don't know. Like, because forty's old. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> well, what would be your what would be your relationship with your partner? Where would right. you yeah, be in yeah, your exactly. life? There's so yeah. many, yeah, so I mean, many different. Yeah, things. just so many, so many unknowns. And and I've also found that it's not worth second guessing. You never cross the same cross the same yeah. river twice. Oh, or, oh yeah, or, never cross the same yeah, river. Twice. Yeah, you know. Or when you do, the the river has changed or you have if changed. If you had made a different decision, yeah. you wouldn't be where you are. And no. you don't. Also, you may have gotten hit by a car on your way to back to the yeah. base and now you'd well, be dead. I mean, so, like, you you can't, you can't. But this is, you, I want to just, this is the last thing. So, I mean, this is especially, and I think this is probably specific to the arts, that idea of following your dreams and doing the art and all this stuff. The argument would be. Because I'm in the uncomfortable position of trying to talk my son out of going into theater. Right? I, have a, I have a career in theater. My son is liking theater. I'm like, you don't understand. Is the worst way to make a living ever. The only reason to do it is if you can't stand not to do it. I mean, honest to God. Okay. Um, also to get girls. I thought that was part of your... Yeah, okay. We were, that's, my wife told my son that I went into theater for the girls, which is technically... The rest of us believe that. Which is I don't, that's technically not, correct. Right. But I don't <laughs> want my son... I mean, that's not what you... Anyway. Um, <laughs> but if you're... If you're of that temperament that you can't do anything else, there's a lot of people, especially as an actor or a, or a, a, a fine artist, mm-hmm. where you're crafting something. I mean, it's a very difficult way to make a living, um, at, you know, financially. It's just it's it's very. T- what you'd want to tell somebody is keep your day job and do art on the side. Like that's what I want to tell people. But not everyone can do that, and you wouldn't have been able to do the things that you did on a side hustle. Yeah, and that I think also that really depends on each person's personality. Yeah, I can't. I am either all in uh-huh. or it's not. I'm. I don't do it. But sort of happen. Here's, here's the practical part of it, though. She was a commander in the army and flew helicopters. She's disciplined. She's a functional adult. She can wake up in the morning and go to work and do the job right. and not be flaky. Right, like. Right, and by, but, and by like, comparison, clear, I, clearly, I, right? I like hear, so, I hear, but you in this sentence somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about being a person who also has, because I'm a writer, right? So mm-hmm. I also have, but, but being able to work for yourself and create your product without mm-hmm. the structure of someone else making you do it every, like somebody, right. like I have a boss who pays me to show up for work, right? right. If I was just on my own trying to like create a right, right? right. like I don't think I would right. I think I'd sit around in my underwear and drink coffee all day yeah I mean so yeah. so part of that is like just being disciplined enough you know either as an adult or by temperament or by practice to make a living through perspiration doing your thing yeah mm-hmm. you know what I mean if you don't have that Probably you need to get that before you decide that yeah. you're going to be a professional artist. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this all-in thing is is important. When we when new new parents come to talk about their kids going into theater, and they say, you know, we want them to have a backup plan, and we always tell them the same thing: you don't want a backup plan. Like if you if this is what you want to do, the only way to do it is 100 percent right. I mean, that's that's how it's worked for me. I know a lot of people who are like, if I can keep this as my side hustle where I am not forced financially to make this support me, then I can be more creative. Elizabeth Gilbert, mm-hmm. Big Magic has has that philosophy. Like, if it's something on the side, I can be more creative. But that's not how I operate. You're not wired that way. I know. I 
I have a mission task purpose. I have the, I have the structure. Like if, if I can, if it can fit within the bounds of, of that structure, then that's where I'm putting all of my energy. And I can't do that unless I'm, I'm all in. So you kind of have to know who you are. Are you an yeah. all in kind of person? Yeah. Or are you a kind no, of, this like kind yeah. of creative don't thing, take a personality yeah. test to figure that out. Just know. Yeah. yeah. Just look at yourself and, and see what type of person you are. I, you know what? I, I think that is the most important thing I've learned from this podcast so far. I've learned that helicopters don't have wheels. They have sticks. No, they no, have they wheels under have wheels. The wheels no. are, well, actually, yeah. I didn't know that either when she yeah. was talking about doing the, like, the, the rolling, rolling thing. I didn't mm-hmm. know there were wheels Some of them have skids. Some of them have wheels. I yeah. didn't know that either. Did you know that if you touch a helicopter, you could get shocked? No. Yeah. I, I have made it a point not to get too close to helicopters. Because they're dangerous. We used and to I am to, a safety person. When I was in the military, we had to. I was an ordnance, so we had to load things on and off of helicopters sometimes. Okay. And so when the helicopters come down, you have to have a grounding rod to touch the helicopter because otherwise all the static electricity that the helicopter generates can kill you. Really? Yeah. 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 Have you ever seen that? Has anyone ever a new, gotten zapped? A new way that helicopters are dangerous that I didn't know yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. I knew the part where they fall the out of the sky. The main rotors and the tail rotor are the most things that <laughs> to be careful of. But. Right. <laughs> Ever... It's very true. You, when you when you're refueling, they have to ground the aircraft so that there yeah. is because no we're because we're loading explosives onto it. That also seems dangerous. Oh, I a guess static so. electricity yeah. and explosives. Well, I think it's probably more dangerous. And a having... bunch of 19 year olds. That's the most <laughs> dangerous. Right. Okay. A bunch of 19 year olds with explosives. Right. And yeah. I've heard stories about you being in the military. I'm not. We're not going to go into that. We're yeah. not going to go into. Yeah. You still love to blow things up. Uh, thank you so very much. <laughs> was this? Thank you, Aaron, for having me, Tara. Are there now? Were there? Is there anything that? You wanted to tell that I haven't asked you? No, I think I think we I think we covered it. What I the one thing I will say is when you're talking about like did you know that your this is what your path would be? Interestingly, when I go back and look at things, I read my command philosophy from when I was a when I was a commander. And one of the things that it said is there's just it's a it's a one page statement laying sort of out your um, your framework of leadership and how and how you're going to like run the company. And in it, it said um, you must learn your craft thoroughly and understand where you fit into the big picture. And so looking that looking at that in hindsight that goes back to the to the overview and to the details but how I used craft even then even before craft was something that I thought about as much as I as I do now but like this idea that you will be technically and tactically proficient at at what you're doing but that there's also something beyond just that technical expertise that you are bringing something that that can't be taught for me craft there's something about craft that it can't be taught there there's that base attention to detail yeah and there's that base of the the technical and tactical knowledge that you use as the foundation and then it's sort of what you do with it beyond that that makes it that makes it truly your own that's one of the that's one of the questions that I was that I was going to ask you is um, how have the skills your military skills translated over but I mean they all have. Yeah, I mean, it's mostly mindset um, is what has transferred over. But I think the other sort of maybe conceptual thing is you're talking about an aircraft that weighs 11,400 pounds when it's empty. But the smallest control touch on the cyclic or the collective like can make drastic 
changes to the aircraft. And so it's this idea that whether it's in a piece of furniture or in an interaction with someone, just the slightest thing that you say or do or the way that you interact can really have have a ripple effect. And I think through when we were talking about creative vets or, or working with veterans and craft, like it really, that's where it, that, Thing that thing. I learned in the military has really translated. That little tiny, any, any little tiny change can have huge things. So pay mm-hmm. attention to the details. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Was this fun? I really, I really appreciate. It. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Visit reinventionpodcast.com for free resources.